Wonder Woman 1984, Dune, The Matrix 4, In the Heights, Godzilla vs. Kong. You haven't seen these movies yet because they haven't come out yet, but they were supposed to be some of the biggest blockbusters of 2021. But at least in the US, they will not be seeing the inside of a cinema. Yes, this week on Download This Show, the major movie studio that has surrendered to the pandemic in America and has put all of their films for next year on their streaming service. Does it hasten the end of the big screen experience? And self-driving cars were supposed to be the future, but at least one company has decided to pull the plug. Well, sell the plug. All that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download the Show. We are joined by creative technologist Jesse Hughes. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. And from Byteside, the expanding empire that is Byteside. Shapers Burton, welcome right. back. Good to be here. It is nice to have you both here. And this is, if this were a more highly produced show, the moment where I would play the funeral dirge, the funeral dirge for movies. Because apparently all movies have just died. Uh, in the last week we saw an unprecedented, oh, I promised myself we'd stop using that word in 2020, uh, decision from the uh, what used to be known as the Warner Brothers Movie Studio. Is, um, and basically they've decided that every movie they had planned for 2021, and there are some big movies there, uh, is now going to their streaming service known as HBO Max. And it's gotten a lot of Hollywood filmmakers, big name filmmakers, people like Christopher Nolan, very, very, very upset. So let's round back for a second here. This is something that specifically affects the US, but it has huge financial implications. Why did they make this decision in the first place, Seamus? I mean, let's look at the year that was. Of course, we're dealing with this pandemic situation, particularly in their home market of the US, where things haven't gotten much better over the year and have been largely getting worse heading into their winter. Um, cinemas have not been a place people want to go. And there is a backlog of movies that have had to be pushed back uh, and releases be delayed into 2021 uh, because they just didn't want to release into this sort of situation. They did release uh, Tenet. That was probably the biggest movie they released this year by Christopher Nolan. Uh, and it, you know, didn't do the kinds of numbers that you would expect uh, a movie like that to do, whether that's because it wasn't all that great or whether it's because no one was going to the movies. Maybe it's a little of both columns. Um, but clearly they had to make a decision about something instead of just continuing to sit on a giant pile of movies and not release them anytime. Yeah, well, this is the other thing. You've got some movies there that, you know, you just can't hold them off for a year. That's not how big companies work, Jesse. Um, well, that's the thing. is like these films are just like everybody wants them. We've been waiting. They've been pushed back. And the fact that like we can be getting this now, it's exciting. Yeah, it's not what we wanted, but there's a lot of that in 2020 nobody really wanted. So <laughs> it's just a, <laughs> it's more about pivoting with what is available. Um, you know, if you can't go to the cinema, at least, at least you can watch these from home. I can understand why cinemas are petrified and devastated by this move. And I think there is like reason for concern in whether they're going to bounce back, whether people are going to get used to this. I know they were talking about having this kind of deal come out for a year and so running it for a year and whether behavioural changes 
can happen within a year that people are like, okay, we don't need to go to the cinema anymore. I doubt that. I love going to movies. It's so fun. Well, <laughs> this is the confusing thing though, right? Because it's very likely that these movies will come out in our cinemas and cinemas around the world. So part of their, their pitch to the filmmakers is that you'll still get a global cinema release. It's just you won't get one in America. The issue is that most of the money, Seamus, in terms of box office, still at this point uh, is from American box office. And that has a huge impact, I think, on certainly how I think filmmakers feel about their work. But the other aspect to it is a lot of these um, filmmakers, producers, actors and star, they get something called back end, which is they get a percentage of what comes from the the ticket sales and and the the total profit. And it's a bit unclear how it is that Warner Brothers is sort of satisfying that end of the deal. Because once you said something through to a streaming service like HBO Max, that suddenly becomes a non-issue. Is there any clarity over how that end of the business is going to be done? Because that's that's a huge part of, of how movies are made these days. Um, I think the short answer to that is no. There is very little clarity right now. I know, you know AMC cinemas in the States are furious. Uh, they're talking about what kinds of legal responses they can take to what's going on. I think they've made the announcement and then they're going to work out the, de- the details from there. Um, but you're right. There's so many contracts in sort of the whole Hollywood ecosystem that that have all those kinds of stipulations about sort of what percentages you will get based on the different types of uh, release windows. And, of course, like they've always made the most money by having these staggered uh, release schedules where it goes to the cinemas, then maybe it goes to like uh, airlines, then it goes to TV, then it goes to uh, streaming services. Like there's all those kinds of ways in which they'll negotiate those things out and it maximizes the revenue. This idea of that kind of just same day drop on their own service alongside releasing it to to cinemas and other kinds of outlets Um is confusing right now precisely because we don't know yet what exactly the Australian sort of setup is going to be compared to that kind of US setup. Um, So it feels like one of those things where they felt like they probably had to say something. There's been a lot of talk in the US about the fact that AT&T has been thinking about um, selling HBO and the whole HBO Max kind of thing that – that it's one of those classic cases where they bought sort of content companies, then went, maybe we just want to be an internet company again. Um, so it kind of seems like it's one of those test cases where they get to just try something really big and see what happens. And one way or the other, they either sell it or it turns out to be one of the best ideas ever. Well, I mean, it's interesting with HBO Max. I think we've talked a lot about um, just the sheer overload of streaming services that have, that have come out. And some of them are accessible to us. Obviously, we have Netflix and Stan and all the rest of it. But there are a uh, so many that have launched in the US in the last year. And basically, in large part, what's happened is that huge media conglomerates, so your NBC Universals and, uh, and, and of course, Warner Media, which is the company here, which um, owns uh, Warner Brothers and HBO Max, all of them have decided they want a direct relationship with the consumer, and that means a streaming service, right? So in the case of NBC Universal, they have a thing called Peacock. And so one of the things that has happened here, and it's an unusual year for it to unfold, is that you've launched all of these different streaming services in a year where nominally you would think, a, you know, it's a good year to launch a streaming service. And it seems like there's been a bit of fatigue or overload in, in the marketplace because HBO Max comes with a great pedigree, right? Like, you know, HBO is a well-known brand. People associate it with sort of premium shows, 
like Game of Thrones and whatnot. They've taken that brand, turned it into a streaming service and had a relatively disappointing launch, right, Seamus? So we're only talking about 8 million people, which in the context of America is not very big, that have signed up for it. Do you think, um, Seamus, uh, that having all of these big movies launch over the year, big movies that people would have expected to see at the cinema will actually drive subscribers and, and give them an edge over the, the Disney Pluses and the, uh, and the Netflixes of the world? Well, yeah, you know, I, I think they're probably chasing a bit of that Disney Plus dream in a sense here where, you know, I think uh, Disney considered the release of Milan a success as a kind of digital first solution. Um, and I think there's that idea of maybe they can try to replicate a bit of that. I've seen some interesting calculations that do suggest that all they need to do is add like a few more million subscribers to what was a pretty disappointing launch. And that money starts to sort of be recovered quite quickly because look, most people pay the lazy tax and they don't unsubscribe, you know, the month after they wanted to watch that one movie, they just leave it running. And then suddenly that company might make another half a billion dollars because 5 million new people signed up. So, you know, that kind of stuff does potentially add up for them. But of course, Disney, Plus had that like quality guarantee of, you know, the Marvel, Star Wars, Disney back catalogs galore, you know, Fox as well with Simpsons and it, like it, it was so such an easy sell for them. Whereas, you know, maybe if they'd done this a few years ago when Game of Thrones was still sort of, you know, peak television, uh, then it might have been sort of a much easier thing to push into the market. But this is kind of the launch and it's almost after, in a lot of ways, HBO's kind of peak days and Netflix has sort of taken that mantle for, for peak television in some respects. But, Jesse, I think it also speaks to the difference of value of movies versus television, right? So Disney Plus, just to take the comparison between Disney Plus and HBO Max, right? So Disney Plus has some home court advantage because it's got all this kids' content that, you know, every parent under the sun wants. But <laughs> they have, like, one really significant breakout television hit in the form of the Star Wars spin-off, The Mandalorian. And it strikes me that the advantage of, of having a television show is that you have repeat talk about you know, something that you can repeatedly talk about week after week after week as you drop episodes. And that kind of enhances this idea that, hey, this thing you pay 12 bucks a month for or however much it is, has value. Whereas movies, you know, they have a one, one-off one hit, but they tend not to have that continuing conversation. Unless, of course, you do what HBO Max has done, which is an interesting sort of change in the dynamic, which is you say, I've got, we've got 17 of the biggest movies we had planned uh, that'll come out over the next year. Do you think by, by dropping their biggest and most impactful hits on a service, they can replicate some of that talkability that, that TV shows get over at, you know, Disney Plus or, or Netflix? Yeah, I do. Because I think like that's how cinemas draw people in like they say we have this giant hit and that's going to lure you to come and you know pay your money here buy a popcorn I think that's kind of what they're doing is saying we have this giant hit that you've been waiting all year to see come and subscribe to us jump onto our platform and you know and we'll have another one next month and I think it's when you start talking about quality content we're in like we've discussed there's so many streaming platforms out there what we are so desperate for is actually really good content um and these films that are destined for theatrical you know release like they the bar's pretty high <laughs> if it's going to go to a cinema we assume that the bar's going to be pretty high so i think as long as they are maintaining that standard that would be enough to drag us in and then hopefully keep us around with more good things that have come does this spell the death knell for the cinema experience 
Uh, no, look, you know, I think it's going to change. Like there is no question before even this announcement, everybody sort of knew cinemas were going to have to change again, especially in that US market where they've probably got sort of many months into next year before anything's going to really sort of uh, resolve all that quickly. Um, for me, it feels like, you know, they, the US also has those laws around whether or not you know, like a, a movie company can't also own the cinemas. Now, this kind of argument with AMC for me almost sort of flags the idea that uh, there's like a cartel operation in a sense where <laughs> they're basically saying, oh, well, we might get upset and maybe we won't even carry any movies from Warner. You're like, well, isn't that some kind of a, a tactic to for you to negotiate and stop movies from being released? You know, and that that's its own problem. So I think a lot is going to change whatever the outcome of this. And I just hope you know, cinemas up their game in terms of the sort of quality of it all. Yeah, I'm, it, it reminds me that, yeah, we don't want to think of cinemas as a place only for elites and, and they become smaller, but they already are really expensive for a family to go <laughs> yeah. out to see yeah. a single movie. So they have to do so much more to convince us that it's worthwhile. Yeah, I must say, my when I first saw this news broke, my first thought was we've seen having spent a lot of time in my career examining cinemas and movies, <laughs> the thing that struck me is that there was a, over the last sort of 10, 15 years, there's been a steady slide from cinemas being a very, very mass entertainment form to being something that sort of exists in two piles. And one pile being like the the big event sort of stuff, which is you, you sort of Marvel movies and, and whatnot that, that, ha- that sort of demand to be seen on a big screen. They still command a certain kind of attention. And then on the other end of the spectrum was sort of like cinema as a delicacy. So it's the really high-end sort of you go, you sit in a reclining chair, they bring you hors d'oeuvres and champagne and you get boozed halfway through. Some That's movie starring my cinema experience. Yeah, <laughs> How but are I you think, getting this treatment? I think what this tends, like if and when it bounces back, I think what this tends to do is it tends to like, shift cinema into, into both of those camps even further where it becomes even more of a delicacy and there's a whole middle range of entertainment that you're just like, meh, watching my big screen at home. I think that's my that's my operating theory about what this shakes down as in, in the next couple of years. And neither of them neither of those scenarios spell growth to me. They both sound like something that's going to you know ex- exist, not going to die, but shrink. Mm. Yeah, I think growth's the the key word there because it is. But as well as like you're thinking about experiences, I think when we we're talking about cinema, it is is an experience. Whereas if you're sitting at home, you're going to have the distraction of your phone, of the dog, of whatever it is. Like it's not that fully immersive space, which is where we get the satisfaction of being immersed in a totally black room and and falling into these films and falling in love with them. So um, I hope that the experience stays and we still get to, you know, hang out and have something to do with our friends in the outside physical world that we're not entirely trapped to our, <laughs> to our, our, our houses and our screens. Like, please, can we go outside? <laughs> no, it's, it's so true, the thing you say. I've, I always to describe the special source of cinemas is that it's a subtraction experience. It's not mm-hmm. the addition yeah. of big sound or big screen. It's the subtraction of distraction. So you go yeah. into a dark room and there's nothing, everything about that environment is focusing your attention on a big room. They actively discourage you to use your phone. I think that's the thing that makes it special. And I'd, it'd be very sad if that shrunk as an industry, but hey, that's what retired film yeah. critics think about the world. <laughs> Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week are creative technology. Jesse Hughes and from Biteside, Seamus Byrne, Mark Fennell is my name and why was she fired? Huge news out of Google in the last couple of days where uh, an AI ethics researcher was let go and there's been a huge amount of discussion as to exactly Seamus why. Take me back, tell me the story of what happened. 
Uh, so early last week, uh, Timnit Gebru was uh, – had filed uh, a paper for a, an ethics, well, AI conference, and she's a specialist in AI ethics. Uh, after a bit of an internal argument and uh, an effort to withdraw the paper that had been submitted, um, she sent an internal email where she basically called out uh, her bosses and essentially said to a number of her colleagues, uh, what's even the point uh, of doing this? Uh the the result ended up essentially being that she threatened to resign uh, and they sort of said, well, we'll just take your keys now, um, cut off her accounts uh, and sort of you know, basically cut her out of the system, uh, which then led to the whole, well, she said she was resigning and she's like, well, they fired me because they didn't even give me the chance to discuss this further. Um, that's resulted in about 4,500 signatures uh, from AI ethics researchers or AI researchers uh, from all around the world as well as internally uh, at Google. Uh, and, yeah, giant uh, fight in the AI uh, community over at Google because the key here being uh, that this paper was essentially threatening uh, elements of Google's business model. Right, so let's get into that. What do we know was in this paper, Jesse? Um, so the paper was talking about natural language processing. And so um, to describe it very simply is if you say, if you're talking to a virtual assistant, you want that virtual assistant to understand what I'm, what, what we're saying, rather than taking out keywords and trying to give me information based on that. We want it to actually be able to understand what I'm talking about so that then it can reply as a human would. So that's natural language processing in a nutshell. Um, but what the paper talked about was like the issues of what it was going into. So for like an example, and the environmental, the environmental impacts of, um, by the way, this is her job. Her job is to discuss the risks that are involved with what they're doing. So, so yeah, she's going to be highlighting the potential wrongdoings. So for example, environmental risks. So, um, to be able to run, um, to one of these models or these language models, it, you know, to run one, it takes the same amount of carbon emissions of running five American cars. So like, so she's talking about something with that, um, you know, they go on about bias in language data. So if you're looking at, for example, the language that's used on Twitter, right, that's going to include a lot of sexist and racist mm. and not ideal language <laughs> that if you're training a model on, it could inherently could it could start having those that that language or having an understanding of that, um, which we don't want. Um, and so her paper was discussing all of these factors. The controversy that they were saying it wasn't that her research didn't also involve like oh well we're doing things to combat our environmental impacts was what um, Google was saying. You know the paper didn't include all of that, but. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty interesting take on going forward. And I think when we talk about innovation or we talk about, um, you know, artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence is going to run the future. Okay. Like it already is. And it's only going to just skyrocket, right? We want to get it foundationally correct. We want to make sure that the ethics that we are putting onto that we aren't having bias come across that we, you know, and her, her research specifically, the reason she is, you know, touted as this amazing person is because she highlighted major issues in racial bias in AI of, um, you know, this technology not recognizing black women faces nearly as well as white women or white men's faces. You know, that's major. If you're going to be designing technology that solely relies on facial recognition and you aren't designing it for the entire, 
you know, that, that it, isn't a, it isn't a fair experience <laughs> depending on your race. Like this is incredibly important research. And so I think when we are stopping or silencing voices, especially voices like she, she's a black, she's a black woman of color and she's in a leadership position. This is important. And her voice was being silenced. And that is why everybody is heated as because, um, yeah, they see it kind of as an attack on academic freedom, as well as what it actually means to be having somebody in this leadership position, yeah, having her voice not heard. This falls under the backdrop of a pretty complex relationship that's been brewing between Google and its workforce over a range of issues. Mm. There's been walkouts against sexual harassment and systematic uh, systemic racism, and that's been going for a few years now. Is this sort of a flashpoint or an inflection point in that broader discussion, or is it a example of it in action? Yeah, I think with tech, well, with all companies, especially the climate that we're in at the moment, um, everybody wants diversity and inclusion in their company. So that's what they say. That's what is at the front of everything. But you need to be acting in, in, in that way. You need to be ensuring that the leadership teams are filled with diverse voices and diverse thoughts and all this stuff going on because, like, especially Google, they said, I think they said they wanted to increase their diversity about 30% or something like that. Mm. And then to be having figureheads, like, she is a figurehead. And now this has just lit this fire and people are going to be feeling uncomfortable and aggravated. And I think, like, now that this is, has kind of come to the forefront is going to be how they deal with the rollout of that so that people do feel the freedom of saying, hey, I feel like I am being discriminated in my workforce. Like, how can you help or like, what are we going to do about it? Rather than saying, no, that's it. I'm silencing your voice and you're out. Okay, that is not a productive way forward. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. We have creative technologist Jesse Hughes and Seamus Byrne from Byteside with us. Mark Fennell is my name. And a few years ago, it seemed like every tech company and their dog <laughs> was setting up a driverless car unit. Um, and now it seems at least some of them have decided, yeah, nah. Uh, one of those companies being Uber. Uber have decided <laughs> to sell off their driverless car subsidiary. The question is why? Because of all the different companies that was investing in it, we know that Google was investing in it. I'm pretty sure Apple was at some point. I don't know if that's still a thing. Uh, Uber is the one that made the most sense to me. <laughs> like It just made sense that Uber would want to invest in driverless cars. So, Jesse, why are they getting out of that business? Because this year has ruined them um, and their money making pretty much. Um, so, like, this has been a really hard year for Uber because, ta-da, people are not traveling. They're not going around. They've been relying on, like, Uber Eats. I was like, going to say, Eats has been, like, I feel like career. I'm using Uber more for Eats. Yeah, you, like, Uber Eats has truly been, like, what has kept them afloat during this pandemic. So, you know, it's okay if you want to be lazy. You're supporting businesses. Yay. Um, but pretty much um, with this self-driving unit, um, it just wasn't directly making them immediate money. And I think that's where they're at. Like they want to be, they, they need to be making money for their shareholders to, to instill confidence in that kind of thing going forward. So this was a money deal. Um, and like, I think they were invested in scooters and stuff for a while back there. Like they're letting mm. go of and I, flying cars. Oh my gosh, I wish we had flying cars. Uh, they're yeah. still fine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're I'm still just going to keep making this show until flying cars become a thing. And the moment flying cars <laughs> become a thing, that will be my cue to retire. I've truly, I was like, I, I was, I was expecting flying cars like 10 years ago. I'm really, I'm really unfortunate. It's so sad with Mark, you yet, forgot the it. investment bit there. You need to own a piece of yeah. it to be able to retire when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> you mean I can't, yeah, I can't retire my, my ABC laurels? Is that not how that's going? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh, but it's yeah, it's a funny, it's a funny step that they've done. Like I think it's for the best for them in terms of a business step forward. And the the people they're handing it over to, like they're specifically focused on um, self driving 
podcast. So that's a good way forward. Uh, what I thought was really interesting with this new company who's acquiring it is they're kind of really interested in um, like trucks, in self-driving trucks. And I think that is in a pretty massive step forward for the autonomous vehicle um, kind of use case uh, because that's that would solve transportation of um, you know, I don't know, like our packages across the country mm. and that kind of stuff. So instead of having commercial or sorry, like every, an everyday person having autonomous vehicles, instead having these big companies using it for transporting goods across the country, um, I think it's more of like a practical for first step. And then we can go to, you know, me having my my time to watch my HBO Max, you know, sitting there on my phone. <laughs> Seamus, um, it's worth pointing out that Uber's driverless car program has been plagued with issues over the years. So, of course, mm. um, one of their cars was involved in a deadly car crash in Arizona. And early on, there was a lot of legal fights involving technology theft from other companies. Has that contributed to why it was easy for them to let go of? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I think right when they first launched the program, uh, it was under the sort of previous CEO and the ambition, and I think a lot of people at the time thought it was only going to take a couple of years, you know, to get this tech Mm. working beautifully. And then they could get rid of all their drivers and it would be so much cheaper to just send autonomous cars to pick people up and drop them off and all that sort of jazz. So it was much harder problem than they first thought. And so, yeah, sort of maintaining this side project with all of the issues attached to it, um, it just seems like, uh, you know, again, as sort of was mentioned earlier, that they've become kind of a logistics company in a lot of ways this year, that it is more about delivery. And so rethinking what you even are, um, I think, starts to sort of realise that actually the self-driving almost becomes a commodity at a certain point, right? So, you know, they still will own a large piece of uh, Aurora, which is the the company that they are selling to, um, that it is based on like ex-Uber uh, self-driving experts, ex-Google self-driving experts. I think it was initially backed by Amazon. Um, it's the kind of thing where you go, let's let some specialists go and work out how to solve whatever the best problems are to solve with self-driving. As Jesse mentioned, the sort of the truck logistics type things is a huge thing in that space, mm. but it's not something that Uber wants to start building trucks. So, you know, Aurora can, do, can go and kind of solve all sorts of problems. Uber still owns a bit of that. And then when they perfect self-driving, you know, if they get to that point, then they will still be able to license that comfortably because they have that relationship. The relationship between Uber and its uh, its drivers, either Uber Eats drivers, has become uh, an increasing area of focus over the last year, particularly with the sheer number of um, not just Uber Eats drivers, it should be said, a few other um, rideshare drivers, a few other delivery drivers uh, have been killed and there's been, particularly in Australia, and there's been a lot of questions over where the responsibility and the mm. liability for that lies. What do, how, do, how well do you think Uber has managed that uh, the last few months? Um, look, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a hard question because we rarely hear all that much from the drivers themselves because the drivers Mm. don't necessarily want to get themselves kicked off the network. (laughs) A lot of them sort of absolutely recognise that, you know, that that sort of dream of of flexibly driving anywhere, anytime is sort of really great until you try to genuinely earn your sole income from it. You know, I've known plenty of people who do a bit of driving on the side and they find that a really just nice way to make a few extra bucks. But that idea of sort of going into that sort of real push to make it work um, is where it gets hardest. And that's also where we, I think, don't hear all that many stories about how those people are feeling through these sorts of times because 
um, yeah, they don't want to get themselves in trouble because, again, they don't have employee, uh, you know, sort of uh, protections uh, and things like that. So it's tricky, I think. I guess like all these tech companies, I think, you know, they haven't really been slapped on the wrist over anything much yet. Um, the California laws passed recently in the during the election um, that they actually sort of, uh, yeah, there was a huge bill uh, or proposition uh, there over whether people would have to be treated as employees and that was rejected um, by the public. So, uh, you know, they did a big advertising campaign there to try to win that. Um, so in that regard, that's probably the biggest win they've had globally um, is to actually have pushed back against an effort to try to let the public have a say on that. So um, I guess they probably feel like that as much as this year has been hard, that that in those sorts of legal and political battles, uh, they probably feel like they're coming out well. Mm, well, I guess we'll see how it plays out. Hey, that is all we have time for on the show this week. Uh, Jesse Hughes, thank you so much for being on the show this week. Of course. I'll see you guys next year. Yeah, oh, my God, next year. Can you believe it? I oh, know. No. <laughs> uh, Jesse Hughes is a creative technologist. And Seamus Byrne from Byteside, thanks for being on the show again. Always good to be here. And with that, I shall leave you. My name has been Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. Download This Show.